0: Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. This is a very special conversation. Don Randy is a legendary musician. He worked with Phil Spector to create the influential wall of sound, and he served as an essential member of the Wrecking Crew. Along the way, he played on many records that constitute the soundtrack of our lives, including hits by Nancy and Frank Sinatra, Linda Ronstadt, Mama Cass, Neil Diamond, Brian Wilson, Glenn Campbell, and countless others. We talk about all of this and much more in this far ranging conversation, including his scoring duties for Roger Corman's delirious 1970 film Bloody Mama, and his 50 year ownership of one of LA's most enduring jazz clubs, The Baked Potato. This interview was conducted for Episode 3 of our Movie Geek Yearbook series. Visit MovieGeekYearbook.com for more information. How how are you getting along during this uh, surreal time we're living in right now?
1: Uh, yes, it's not it's not very good for us because you know we own a very famous jazz club called the Big Potato. Yeah, and and uh, all the guys have been amazing. You know, we, we we've been over fifty years, and uh, um, we can't they let us open up, so we're at one one third capacity a little more maybe, and my son spent a fortune on on a streaming system ahead of time, which has helped us a little bit, you know. It's an amazing five-camera streaming system. I mean, it's a full-blown, you know, television station in in our office, you know. Mm. And uh, so that's helped a little bit, but not as much as you would would think at this time, because nobody's doing anything, you know, and the word has to get out about it, you know. And then they closed us again. Oh
0: no! Yeah.
1: So, so it's it's not
0: good. It's going to be with us for a while, I think. Yes, um, it
1: is. I think it, it, it's obvious. But they should have never let us open. Right. But what they don't take in consideration? Okay, yeah. Well, we can just do that. You can't just do that because people go out and say spent three, 000, four thousand dollars on restocking your club. You know. Right. And It's, it's now what. <laughs> Uh, it's awful that's good so food's gonna go bad you know So it'll be like musicians again and we'll be coming to the back door it looked like everybody was buying drugs they were taking home these giant potatoes and cheese <laughs> and meat whatever we had justin gave it away you know uh
0: so where but when the when the club opens back up again how how can people see the streaming
1: uh you go to uh actually you can watch it anytime now because it's on it's on uh Video on demand, also. Okay. You go to bakedpotato.com, or else you can go to BP live stream.
0: You know. Mm. You know. Dot com. Since since we're talking about the baked potato, uh, I mean, I, I yeah. want to talk to you definitely about Bloody Mama uh, because um, yeah. I'm, I'm so excited to include you in the series. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the baked potato, because this is a club you started in 1970, I believe. Right. And uh, I mean, 50 years of of changes in in Los Angeles. How have you guys survived th- this long?
1: It's only gotten better for us. We, we've been we've been uh, we watched over <laughs> over 7,000 places in 50 years of open and closed, trying to do what we do. And the reason I can tell you that is I know somebody at the at ABC, the uh, Alcoholic Beverage Commission, and they said, you know, our food thing helps us a lot. We're very famous for the food. The food is excellent, and uh, um, and then we get the greatest jazz artists there are. Mm. It's just, you know it's... not the really really high line ones, except some of them will come in. And you never know when they're going to walk in, especially when I'm playing, and say I'm sitting in. <laughs> and it, it becomes an amazing night, you know.
0: Was was the love of jazz, is that what initially turned your musical motor on?
1: Yes, you know, I, I, I was one of the wrecking crew, the, the uh, studio musicians, yeah. that were doing all the sessions. And uh, um, we were so busy, and everybody, you know, I said, i got to have a place to play because I always loved playing live. Even when I was in the studios, I kept, I kept working in nightclubs. So I got an opportunity to find this little place, and the guy gave me a two-year option on it. To uh, the, the, the guy that I bought it from, his name was John Harlan, who was a very famous person, only nobody knows that. He was the guy that was on about four or five different game shows, where he was the one that would say, and you've just won. <laughs> Oh wow. You know, he he was the announcer <laughs> and he was a great guy, a great guy. And he invested in, in that whole area. He owned over I guess they say over thirty or forty properties on where the club is on Counter Boulevard and then up and down the valley. So he's he did quite well. I don't even know if he's still alive. Mm. But but he, he gave us a two year option. If I could buy it within two years, if not I could just stay there and rent it, then I would lose the option. And uh, but we were able to buy it after two years, so that was pretty pretty neat. And we opened without a liquor license and everything, just beer and wine. And the food item was so so tempting to everybody that really sustained us, and it still does, you know.
0: Wow. You're, uh, I mean, I I'm, I definitely want to talk about your your collaborations with, with Spectre and, and the whole Wrecking Crew era, but during this time, was was film scoring an an ambition for you, or was it just something that came up?
1: No, it, it was a, a part of an ambition. I, I loved music. I was one of the, few, you know, we were all jazz musicians that were doing all the rock and roll dates. Some of the greatest jazz musicians, you know, but that was a living for us. But most of the guys didn't care for it. You know, it was like they would poo-poo it, you know, just beneath them. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I loved it. the 1st I'll never forget the first time driving in my car and I said, oh my God, I played on that song. And it was, he's a rebel, you know, for Phil Spector. Mm. And I said, "This that was so much fun to me. And then of course, we went on a string for, for me from 19, end of 62 to 63. And then the heavy years in 65, 66, and 67 were unbelievable. I was never home. You know, I was in the studio constantly. And for me, it went all the way up to almost the 80s, and then afterwards, you know, they still call me. But a lot of the guys, you know, didn't do as well after 1970, 71. I kept right on going, you know. Yeah. It was, it was pretty wild.
0: When you go into a studio as a session player, you kind of have to m- mold yourself to, to, to fulfill that musician's vision. And I was wondering if that was ever a, a difficult process for you to get on the same wavelength of, of any of these musicians you've worked with over the years.
1: Sometimes, uh, sometimes it was very challenging, especially working for Phil, because Phil was tiresome. You would do an album in, 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 uh, in, in two days, but the singles took a day itself. He would go in and do one song at a time. He was the one of the first producers to work that way. Usually we were union musicians, which was fantastic, especially now. We would go in and we, we could do four sides in three hours which was unheard of, but we were we were that capable that you could go in, give us the music, and we could do four songs, and out of those four songs, if one of them became a hit, it didn't matter. You know, with Phil, he knew he was gonna make a hit. He just needed the time to get it right. Mm-hmm. And you know, there would be, I wish I could say I was the only piano player, but I've been sitting you know, with Larry Nectal, uh, or Leon Russell, or Al Zalori, or Mike Rubini, or, there were so many different ones of us in the beginning, especially. And, uh, Steve Douglas, who was the saxophone player, was the contractor for that. But we all were union musicians. Everything was on a contract. So we were making union scale. So it was a good living. And, uh, not in the very beginning. It, it, it's in the very beginning of session. If you do four songs, I think it was 62.50 in three hours. That's what the union scale was, mm. Mm. but they also started pension fund and hospitalization at that point. So that was very good, and then they couldn't do hospitalization later. It, it's that whole union thing is such a debacle. Anyway, they always would hire. This is my quote: broken down violin players to be union officials, and they didn't know what the hell they were doing. You
0: know. Yeah, yeah.
1: They, they didn't have you know the Warner Brothers and all these big companies would hire somebody to negotiate for them. They were hired professional people. So you'd go in into negotiation and you would get your ass kicked every time. Mm. And, uh, so but you got through it and, and here we are because of those union contracts, a lot of us are getting nice checks on reuse. And when they, they reuse a song or something, you know, or whatever to get back to what you just said about walking into recession. I'll tell you one great story. I walk into a, a, a session at Capitol for a guy by the name of Nick Bernet, who was one of the Capitol producers, and the group was uh, this ratty-looking little chick who had a sense of humor. Her name was Linda Ronstadt. It was the Stone Ponies, <laughs> and and she was delightful. She was a character right from the get-go. But we're, we're doing the session, and, and, and I look over and I see this harpsichord. I said, wow, I wonder who they got to play that. So I said, who's, gonna, who's the other? He says, no, that's for you. I said, what? Then I you start the pack. I hope it's got some really hard classical piece of music they're going to ask me to play, because you always assume harpsichord is with uh, pre-baroque music and baroque music. So I wait, and the, guy, the arranger, Jimmy Bond, who was helping on, on the... Uh, Uh, on the session, he was also the bass player. And he says, I I want you to approach us as rock and roll, and hands me the music and walks away. And I look at my part and its whole chord changes, nothing's written. And it said, rock and roll, box style. (laughs) And that was it. (laughs) And it became a, a very famous a uh, 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 solo on 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 the sound of a different drum. Mm. Mm. And and years and years later, uh, education people would call me or they'd make some arrangement and they'd ask me about that because they were they were studying uh, uh, in university, they're studying classical music or studying music in general. And how hard was it to read that part? I <laughs> said it was not written. I made it up. That was my world. <laughs> Wow. And that's how that's how most of the dates were. Very rarely did they write, especially for me. They wanted to get, and for most of us, you know, you look over and see some of the greatest guitar players in, in the world, and they're all playing. You know, they're picking rock and roll, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Some of some of them weren't even prepared at the beginning. They all had these jazz guitars. And then Fender started and put these different Fender Telecaster and and all these things, and they had to get them because the producers didn't know. The one who knew the guitar better than them all as a producer was Phil. Phil Spector could actually tell a guitar player, I want you to do it on this fret. I want another guitar player. I want you to use the cable because I want the open sound out of yours. He really did understand the guitar, hopefully better than anyone. And that was because he worked for uh, uh, Lester Sill and Lee Hazelwood. And Lee Hazelwood was the guy who wrote a million hits, who I did over a hundred albums for, over the years. For, for uh, his what was it? Lee Hazelwood Industries, LHI. Hmm. They all weren't hits, but they were great albums that he could produce. But he also understood the guitar very well. Well, and he was basically a, a hillbilly,
0: you know. Yeah, I mean, Specters. Sonic perceptions were just unparalleled, and I, I'm wondering when you're when you're in sessions with Spectre, and you're layering upon layering of sound, did did it feel at the time that you guys were breaking ground?
1: Okay, I have to correct you. There was no layering. It was mono. Mm. So everything had to be done right then and there. It was done. We did it over and over and over and over to the point of, so, we, you know, we take a break, we come back. Some of the songs, we were in eight to ten hours at, 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 on, on one song, and finally wow. said, thank you very much, guys. I got it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he was paying you for that time. He wasn't trying to say, I need some free time. He, he paid us well. Mm. We would make the, over, you know, the overtime on him and, and doubles. And, and for once we did two or three hits, he would pay us double scale. We, there was a, there was about 15 of us when they got us, they knew it was going to cost them, but we became the charm. If you want to make a hit record, you better call those guys. So it worked, it worked out very well and we, and we produced. Yeah. We oh, just, yeah. we, we kept coming up with it and you know, Brian Wilson says, well, I gotta have those guys, you know, those guys, you know, Brian had already started. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm, I'm working for Brian Wilson, I'm, and my joke was if you worked for Brian Wilson and Pete and Phil Spector in the same week, you didn't need to work for anybody else. Oh yeah, yeah. Cause Brian, Brian really took a lot of time also. It was, that was their concept. They weren't in a hurry. They were independent producers. Now, when you got a got a cap, a guy who worked for Capitol Records, he had a budget. They all had budgets. RCA, Victor, Warner Brothers. They also, they everybody had to bring in a certain amount of stuff, unless they had the the green light, which none of them did. So then you had to come in, but they 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 would get around it. Okay, we're only doing two sides in three hours. <laughs> <laughs> And so so it, it was fun. You know, we would go from one date to the next date. I mean, I think one week uh, uh, I, I did 26 different recordings there. And I wrote, I arranged four of them. Wow. wow. I enjoyed playing more than anything else. And all of a sudden I started getting called, what can you help us with an arrangement? So I was ghosting for, I guess, for Billy Strange, for for Ernie Freeman, for... for uh, Marvin Hamlis, you know, a whole bunch of different stuff over the years. And, uh, I said, wait a second, you know, I'm losing out here. Actually, Don Costa was the one that told me that you're making a big mistake. You know, of course he called me to, to, uh, I can't tell you the name of the song, but it was for Quincy Jones and Quincy got nominated for an Academy award and uh, he did not do it. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, he didn't win, fortunately, but uh, uh, that would have really driven me nuts. <laughs> but,
0: uh, <laughs> well, t- but, tell, me, tell me a little oh, bit about because um, you mentioned Brian Wilson, and I'm, I'm thi- someone yeah. so so meticulous with the arrangements, and uh, and and you contributed greatly to um, God Only Knows, which is one of the most yeah. gorgeous songs ever produced. I think. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's,
1: that's it's a, it's an amazing song that. You know, everybody always talks about good vibrations because they don't know how long it took us to do it. That took almost three months. Mm. We'd go out and come back, go out, come back, come back. He, he was the only one that knew. He knew where that was going to end up. Now, with God only knows, he had a he, that was that was pretty much set, except certain parts of the song he wasn't sure of, and there, there's uh, actually. Uh, uh, the story, it's in a video called Pet Sounds. Yeah, An English company did it. And and uh, I think they're called Evil Rock Productions or something. And he and I are having an argument, a friendly argument. And I said, Brian, you're making a story. no, 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 we're going back and forth. And I said, you have to do that short, otherwise it's not gonna work. He said, oh, it's got a really beautiful, I said, I sure, it's a beautiful part, but if you do it staccato, it will it will be more meaningful. And sure enough that's what they ended up doing. That whole that there's an instrumental part, a break. And that was what the argument was. He had it really long notes and so it was fun. Brian would listen, you know. He would take advice. There was a guy that worked for him, a bass player, who also could sing, but he also was an equally great guitar player by the name of Ray Pullman. And Ray was wonderful with Brian. He helped him sometimes, uh, you know, putting, putting certain things together, but not all the time. Most of the time, it was Brian. Mm. There, there's a song called uh, uh, Help Me, Honda. Do you remember that? Oh,
0: of course.
1: Yeah. Sure. So. We go in, it was one of the few times we went into a studio and everything was written already. And I'm looking at this, I said, wow, this is, we went through it one time, I said, this is a stone cold hit. If I, if I ever heard of a hit, this is it. It only took us, a, you know, an hour, hour and a half to do it. And then we did. A, a, went to work on another song and it becomes a number one record. Mm-hmm. And so here we are 20 years later, I, I run into Leon Russell. I go to see one of his concerts and we're hanging out backstage. And so he looks at me and we're joking with each other cause we were pretty close. He says, you know, I played on Help Me Rhonda. I said, no, you didn't. I played on that. He says, yeah, you think you did. I said, no, I did. He "You you did, but let me tell you the story. He did it originally and uh, uh I guess a couple of years before I got it Brian's father Murray hated the song and shelved it so you'll never this will never be released so when a couple of years later after Murray had passed away the first thing Brian said I'm doing this song you know mm. and we went in the studio and and there it was we went through it and and bingo so that's how it happened Leon As a matter of fact, there's a version of his, his version on one, I think it's the album Smile, where it's him and and me playing, you know, uh, later on in in that same, same, uh, uh, I guess, album or or series of albums. Mm. But that's, that's the way it was, you know, Uh, a song that I got to arrange, the first song that I totally arranged that went to number one was purely because of the drummer, Hal Blaine. He and I were called in by Tommy Catalano, who was a producer for Neil Simon. He produces Neil. And Neil, we hated the, the parts of the original session. So we came in and we were fixing our parts. And when we did it I, afterwards, it didn't take us very long, a couple of hours. And, and I said, Hal, boy, I know exactly what to do with the song. And that's all I said, you know, just sitting at the piano. Hal goes into the booth and the next day said, oh, here comes Neil and Tommy. He said, "Can you come to my house? And that was it. And we went there and I arranged that whole crackling Rosie thing.
2: Oh, wow. Uh,
1: and, and that went to, that, I think that actually might have been his first number one. He had a lot of top tens, but that went right, that screamed up to the number one. Mm. So those, those, those things happened, you know, they were interesting times. And because everything was live, you know, mm. It was it was so much fun. And just, I'd like to have a nickel for how many times somebody made a mistake, and the producer said, "Who did that? Let's go that way. <laughs> whatever you did, do that." You know, it was a feeling or whatever. But that's that, that's because it was basically all of us in a room. You know, you look over and you see Tommy Tedesco, who was one of the, the most outstanding musicians in the world. I mean. Mm. This guy could do anything, and then you look at Bonnie Kessel and Howard Roberts, you know, famous, famous jazz guitar players. Do it, Billy Pittman, who was a, who just turned a hundred. Incidentally, he had a hundredth birthday. We all we all got together down in Palm Springs, and and the stories, that the, the stuff for all the younger musicians that have done very well, they they they. There's a bass player, Leland Sklar. I don't know if you're familiar with Leland at all. He's a guy that you see, he works for everybody, and he's got a giant white beard, and he's Mm. got gray hair, and he's he's an amazing musician. He just, he said, I wish I could have been part of that so bad, you have no idea. And he's done very well on his, you know, on his own. I mean, he's a busy musician. Mm. But he just loved it. He said the music was fun, and it's true
0: well and you're all in the studio together there and the you know there has to be something kind of ephemeral about just all of those musicians together interacting i mean that's something you can't yes. you can't get when you like we discussed before when you, you kind of layer it after the fact
1: you you, you just nailed it it's, it's the interaction that would happen uh, we, you know and it was only it wasn't only full spectrum Pratt wilson we would worked for warner brothers reprise for Jimmy bowen Doing this shitload of hits for Dean Martin, for Frank Sinatra, mm. for for you know for all these different one one artists. I remember I'm trying to remember the name. There was a song called "There's an old old tree, old old tree," which is a, was a great song. And it was recorded by uh, a Dorsey Burnett, whose brother was Jimmy Burnett that day, and they were the Burnett brothers. They were country artists, and Dorsey got a number one pop record and country record with that, there's an old old tree, it came out of nowhere. Now everybody who produced a country record had to use us. So you know, those guys can play that country stuff, you know, we don't have to go to Nashville, you know. David Axelrock was a famous producer at at, that Capitol Records, he wouldn't do it. In the very beginning, I'd never worked for him. And then all of a sudden, I did one date. But he would move the things around to get to be sure I was gonna be the piano player on. Mm. And and on his own albums and all I and mean, we did a bunch of stuff with Lou Rawls but, and, and other people. Did you did you, most...
0: Did you record some for Elvis?
1: Yes I did. Yeah, Elvis was the last I turned down that gig three different times because Glendy, w first of all, Glend was too drunk and he didn't want to do it anymore and but he's still doing it, Glenn D. Harden. I love him, and he's a, he's another guy on Song Hero, who's what what hell of an arranger, mm. and most people don't know that. I know that because I worked for him on some of the projects way back in those days, and he used to knock me out. He was a, a wonderful arranger. Mm. But uh, what can I say? You know that everything changed. If not for Billy Strange, I wouldn't have got the job doing Bloody Mama. Yeah, how did
0: that Billy happen? Billy
1: Strange billy strange had a, a, a lot of gigs he also would overextend himself constantly so everybody i get a call at two o'clock in the morning can you help me out i go over and i post a bunch of songs for an album date then he got to work for aip Where al al sims was the head of the music department at american international and 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 uh uh I would go in, it's, I forget the name of the movie, it was about Marquis de Sade, something he was doing, and he couldn't be there, and they needed me to go in once again, there's a whole scene that goes on for about four minutes, of just harpsichord, but he kind of sketched it out for me, some parts written, some parts not written, and it was the hardest thing I ever had to do, because it was set, why he did this, I'll never know. To what they call a variable click. Mm. Usually when you work to a click track, it's constant at one tempo. This one would get a little faster, a little slower, because they cut it to the film. It had to be to precisely to the film. Certain things had to happen on the harpsichord. So so I did that, and, and it, was, it was absolutely, it, it took me forever, and they were very thankful for me, gave me a nice check for doing that one, and the next thing I know, uh, would you be interested in scoring a film? I said, "Well, yeah, this is Billy Stranger's account. No, thank you." He said, "No, Billy recommended you," and that's how it started. You know, I think I did three or four phones in a row for them.
0: Yeah, and so so, and, uh, but with bloody but, with bloody Mama, you actually traveled to the set, didn't you?
1: Yes, I did. We went to Arkansas. We, we were to uh, Bull Shoals, Arkansas. Mm. You'd land in Little in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then they'd take you by car way up into the Ozark Mountains. <laughs> and Did it was it was an ama- amazing time because I made friends with a number of actors. Two of them who are still good friends. With, well not good friends. One of them is really good friend. His name is Don Stroud. Yeah. Who now lives in Hawaii, and the other one was a kid, some kid. Was never going to make it. His name was Bobby De Niro. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, whatever happened to that guy? <laughs> so it was it was kind of fun. And and Bruce Dern was also. You know, they all played the son son of the Barkers. Bruce and I, we I, I'm a football nut. So my wife and I would go. We had great tickets through a ticket scalper that we knew, and and so did Bruce Bruce Dern knew him too. So he'd end up sitting right next to us a lot of times, or right near us, and he'd always come over. And Bruce bet on every game that was going on. You cannot win. You become you're, you're subject to lose a lot of money, <laughs> and he did. <laughs> you know you can't. You can even if you did break even, you were lucky, but it never happens that way, because the, the bookies always have a, a, a gambling system where you they're, they're going to come out, not you, mm. and. Uh, so it was kind of fun, but I I did be uh, I see him every once in a while. Well, of course, he's aged marvelously, and he teaches. Bruce was a good guy,
0: really mm. good guy. Yeah. When did you record in 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 Arkansas as well?
1: No, um, you may think so because, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you're familiar. Have you watched? You probably watched the film a number of times.
0: Oh, I love the movie. There's, yeah.
1: There, there's a scene. Well, I'm, I'm actually in the film playing bass. Yes. <laughs> and, and I pick up the bass, and I try and stab them with the spike on the bottom of the upright bass, because they're robbing our, our, our money. Yeah. The they're stealing it off the stage. And that's Don Stroud. And, you know, <laughs> I'll tell you a story nobody knows about that. We kept rehearsing this. They had four different bases that were breakaway basses. They would, you know, cut them, they looked fine, but all you had to do was touch them and they would you know, almost explode so that it could go into a million pieces for the film, for the camera. So we rehearsed it once, you know, we rehearsed it twice and it didn't work out. Now we're, now we're really getting professional for me. Everybody else was good. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So it comes to the scene and every time we did it, he fires once and that does it. And now we go to do the final scene that they took he, he had a, a gun that was had about 10, 10 shots in it or something like that. And he just said, okay, I'm going to get him. And he kept firing the gun. Boom, 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 boom. And it's loud. And I just, I really went after him. It scared the shit out of me. I said, my God, you know. And in that moment, of course, the scene was done. And and then the collared cut. And he was laying on the floor laughing his ass off. He says, I got you, Dan and you buck <laughs> you <laughs> scared the hell out of me you know they, they 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 were having fun the guys uh what was the other guy oh bobby waldron
0: yes yeah
1: you remember him he became a, a big uh tv star i think on the uh with ed Asnauer on that show about they were news reporters
0: yeah yeah
1: and and then he became later on and he's quit acting and became a sports writer I would see him at some of the Lakers games every once in a
0: while. Did you have interactions with Shelley Winters?
1: Yes, I did. <laughs> First of all, they—they they, <laughs> they sent me there to to uh, what's the word? To keep her happy. <laughs> Whatever she take take all her suggestions because, what's unknown to me, she had an idea of what the music should be for this movie. Hmm. And that was partly in her contract that she could select the songs. And I, nobody does that, because I they, they and they were never going to listen to her, no matter what she was going to say. I don't know this, but I'm on location with uh, uh, Jerry and, and Guy Hemerick, who also helped me write. And and uh, I forget because uh, they 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 wrote for, for AIP. They did a lot of the. Frankie Avalon movies, uh, uh, which yeah. I also got to play on. And uh, um, so here we are, and she'd come back after we were there six weeks. She'd come back, she'd go, the minute she had a break, she'd go to these little stores that are in the area, or she'd have the car take her, you know, 20 miles away, and she'd find these little old music, and she'd come back, oh, Tom, I, I got this great idea. What do you think about this song? I said, that's a great idea, Shelley. And I'd sit down, had a little piano there, and we'd play. She said, well, I'm not too quite sure. I said, well, you know, if you do this, and and, and so that's how it was for about the first three weeks. And then, of course, she didn't have time, and she said that, you know, the, the pressure was on to finish the film. Mm-hmm. I didn't take one song that she played at all. <laughs> Nothing. Because they were they they were old folk things that it, did, it didn't fit for where where Roger Corman was going. Yeah. So what what or did, what, what, I, or, oh. or what what I thought where Roger Corman. Roger Corman didn't even come to the sessions. He was already on another film. Wow. Huh. I did get not get any point from him. It was just me and Al Sims, Al Simonelli. It, it, it was and the, and the music editor, Bing Hershon. Bing was amazing. He he was my My lesson master of how to score. I swear to God, Mm. you know, he would say, you know, if this is happening, you could leave the notes longer so that it becomes, goes into the next cue, and and then it makes it more easier to do, and then makes it more interesting, and and makes the music flow, you know. Right. And he was right, you know. It's a it's a lesson you learn if you don't know about it. And in those days, to score a film, there was a book that had breakdowns of click tracks. You count up to, I think, what is it, 25, in the tempo that you think it is, and you look at your your watch as you're counting, and when you get to 25, you stop it, and that would tell you what click to use to score the film. Mm. So that if it's a minute and 10 seconds and it's fast, you would use 91 or whatever, whatever the click was, or 112 or whatever, but you could figure out the click. And it made it a lot more easier to score. You knew you had this many bars in, in that amount of time in a minute and 10 seconds. Um, uh, what a, There's a drowning scene in Bloody Mama. I don't know if you remember that scene. Sure. Where she's in the tub and they're trying to kill her and they're all trying. Let me tell you, that was one of the most devastating cues you've ever heard. And it took, it was two minutes Close to two minutes and forty seconds for her to die. Mm. It was so unbelievably terrifying because she would not die; she'd come back up. And this one tried and tried, and finally Shelly Wells Winters would cut her head under. When Sam Markoff and, and uh, the other guys saw it when in the, towards the final, they freaked out. They said the audience will go crazy. That's too 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 much. They cut a cue that I had didn't, starting here and ending up at, at at the end so that it kept building and building and building. They took a over 2 minute and 30 second cue, something like that, and cut it down to 57 seconds. Uh. And it still was devastating. Yeah. And years later, I did a, a full orchestra concert at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. And I, I played that song and Clint Eastwood was there. Clint was a fan of mine. He still is. And afterwards, he came backstage, he said, oh my God, you know. And he just looked the band, and then people wrote me letters about it. They were building a pool, and they are going to put a fence on it. Everybody took it a different way. And I called it The Drowning, is, is the title I gave it for the for the concert. And it was a very effective piece of music. By the time it ended, he <laughs> was saying, die already, please die. <laughs> And, and 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 they they cut it, they may then go back in and cut it down, so the audience will never 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 take
0: it well, as it is, the movie is pretty extreme i mean it it it, it, is. it, it breaks a lot of taboos right off the bat. I want to ask about the uh, your your terrific title song uh you know I, I I've been watching that movie a lot over the past month or so, so I find myself walking around the house singing your title song <laughs> so okay. was was that always kind of the the, what what you had in mind to do it a, 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 a title song like that
1: i, I you want to know something i can't remember right now and I'm, I'm being very honest with you uh, i i don't remember what i i don't remember how it started
0: yeah well that's fine <laughs> it was 50 years ago
1: <laughs> yeah um it, it was it was a long time ago but i remember you know it was what they wanted and uh, and i gave it to them um there there's a uh, there's so many interesting things in that film, you know, um, that, that, that really worked out. Whereas on uh, some other films, they think they know what they want and they don't. And, uh, um, it, it makes it so much harder for me it, in retrospect, Roger Corman, not being there at all worked out better for me because I got, I learned how to, to really do it from the, the, uh, the, the music cutter being harsh and,
0: yeah.
1: and just being left alone. So it worked out.
0: Yeah, it sure did. I mean, your music is wonderful, and and I would imagine that uh, when you were in Arkansas visiting the set, I mean, did did, did that kind of environment, did it feel like it infused itself into the music for you? Was that valuable?
1: Yes, it did. I, I met a couple of guys who were with the, who were also in the film as extras. Uh, everybody that makes a living in in Arkansas in those days was on the state payroll. They all worked for the government uh, in, in some capacity. Uh, highways, uh, uh, mm. a health department, whatever. So they they, they all had little parts in it. And they were from the Arkansas Folklore Society who Shelley couldn't stand because there were a bunch of, you know, redneck uh, uh, tobacco chewing guys, but they were interesting, you know. <laughs> and they would tell me stories and I'd listen to the music. I had... Kind of a a, a, a feeling of what, what I got out of out of that whole era, out of uh, area. Uh, later on, I was talking to Glenn Campbell because he was from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and and we were talking, and Fayetteville was on the way up to Bull Shoals, and uh, he said, "I," he says, "It's an amazing place," and I said, "Yeah, it, it's unfortunately." Still 50 years behind the rest of the world. <laughs> you know.
2: <laughs>
1: and uh, let me tell you, they had two cooks that were for, for the for the movie thing, and then another guy that would come up. I put on 15 pounds. Mm. I mean, the food was, on, and, and everybody ate. I mean, you were up at 6 in the morning a lot of times, and they started shooting early. And the schedule was very, very tight. Roger ran a tight ship. And I forget the Elliot. I forget his last name, uh, Cashman or something. Was was the producer, one of the or the associate producer, and he kind of ran it for AIP. He was he was on top of everybody, right? And uh, I forget his. I, I know his first name was Elliot. He was really a nice guy, and he was very helpful too.
0: Elliot uh, Chick,
1: Schickler. Or... Shick, There you go. Yeah. There you go. I think he later became a director for a while, a, a producer mm. for people. But uh, that, that whole scene was, was was pretty amazing. And then you'd have your, the guy sitting next to you with the narrow or shroud or Bruce, Bruce Stern. I, I'm trying to remember the girl. Um, she was really interesting. She did a number of things after that and then disappeared. Uh, she did some television stuff and... and uh, just never, never really made it. But I thought she was a marvelous actress.
0: Was it was a, a um, D- uh, Diane Varsi. Uh, the um...
1: yes, yes, she was one of them.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. I just remembered another name, Clint Kimbrough. He was another one of the uh, one of the sons. You know, so it was an interesting cast. They were, they were. Uh, I'll tell you one scene that is shot where uh, there. Uh, I guess she's going to give birth to a, to one of the sons. And if they, they rented this this uh, house from these people in the Ozark Mountains to shoot it in, it was so filthy, dirty, disgusting that they were living in. I mean, that they had to clean it up as much as they could because no one be- would believe how filthy it was. mm but yet, yet, right outside the door were two white horses that the guy owned that were spotless. Mm-hmm. He would clean them every day he was out there with a hose, hosing them down. Mm-hmm. And that yet, here they are, and, and they had three or four kids, and they're living in such dirt and filth. Yet, those horses were clean. <laughs> they were spotless. And and I'll, I'll never forget. Roger said, I'll, "I was there when they said you better clean this up," and everybody turned around. And they had to stop shooting. It was it was just so impossible that they had to leave it dirty, but get it to a state where it was believable. Mm. That's how filthy it was.
0: Well, the movie has, you know, I know that Roger corbin definitely works on a budget, but the movie has this really authentic feel to it. I mean, oh, it
1: does. Yeah. He, he captured it.
0: Yeah, he really did. Um can, can I ask you just about a couple because I've read your your beautiful autobiography. Uh oh, You did. Oh. I did. It's a it's a great First of all, I want to know what it feels like to hold that book in your hand and know that that's your life. It's it's all right there. Was that... I mean, it, it,
1: it, it was i wish I wish everybody else felt like you, so you're the guy that bought it <laughs>
0: <laughs> well it's it's invaluable I mean it's the history of yeah. of music and popular culture of the past fifty sixty years
1: it, yeah it was you know for me it, it was it was not the easiest thing to do because i I, I found myself being my my own worst critic, mm. and then finally when I got to the stage when it went went to the publisher. They had a girl there that was about 19 years old, who was the assistant music edit- editor for this for the publishing company, and and uh, she she wouldn't accept that that couldn't have happened. She kept saying to them, <laughs> that couldn't have happened, you know. And I finally I, I I let it go, and finally I said, I can't work with her. It's absolutely impossible. She doesn't understand. There is no lies. <laughs> mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: There is no lies, mm-hmm. you know, and and uh, that's the way it was. So finally, they took her off and got somebody else, and it worked out just fine. But it, you become a, a, a super critic critic of yourself, and there's a lot of stories that I left out that you know could have been detrimental to some other people. You know that you know I can tell you about it, but you know there was there was. It was just too hard, you know, why, you know, wreck people's lives worse than they were. The the hardest thing for me was the whole Raquel Welsh era series. And finally, I have a friend of mine, Greg Danalo, who is a pretty, uh, he's written over 15 books himself. He's like the poor man's Tom Clancy. He writes murder (laughs) mysteries. But he also was a, a producer director of a lot of television film and writer on a lot of them. And he read it, you know, and then I said, you know, what about Rachel? <laughs> she He started to laugh. He said, oh, you think you're, you're unique? She was an asshole to everybody, not
0: just you. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know, but it's, it's, it is something when you think about the events of your life and all the people that you've, you've worked alongside over the years, you know, there's, there's, there's your truth, there's, there's their truth, and the actual truth is probably somewhere in the middle.
1: So, oh, yeah, sure. sure. Yeah. A lot of times that happens. And then you, you try to be as, as accurate as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, there was a guy, he's still around, Russ Wapinski, who's made a fortune for all the musicians because he was hired by uh, uh, Local 47, AF of M, to get everything in order. He was finding contracts... Sat, uh, shoved in closets, in, in the basement, and all over the place. That they didn't know. They didn't even know what it was. And he put everything in order, mm. so that if they, if somebody does a song now, they're in trouble because we we got them. Mm. And now everything has been transferred to computer. You know. So uh, um, he, he he did an amazing job for all of us. He, he became a good friend of mine too. He lives in Washington D.C. Um, he does some congressional things every once in a while. I, I keep saying he's a spy to my wife. He, he's, a, he's a dual personality. This is this is the one side and his other side. Something's up there, you know. Yeah. But he did, he did it for all of us and, and was able to put everything in order. Otherwise, it would be almost impossible to, to trace everything down mm. for, for reuse checks and to get paid again.
0: Yeah, um, that's essential. Yeah.
1: I, I met Roger Corman years after that at some function and everything and and he had a good time doing it too but you he, he would accept you know if he could work every six weeks and then and have another project you know he became the king of the b-movies mm-hmm. and uh, he had a lot of them
0: he knew how to do it i mean he had it he oh had, yes he did he invented it basically yeah uh yep. can, I, can i ask you about two people that i'm interested in that you worked alongside um sure you know, I, I was born in 73, and I became a major film buff, and one of my favorite film composers was Jack Nietzsche. And, I mean, obviously I know his his long-storied uh, career prior to film composing, but what impressions do you have of of him?
1: Jack Nietzsche was an incredible, um, <laughs> he was probably my best friend also on top of that. We mm-hmm. lived right near each other on in a place called Nichols Canyon, and we all would all be together. My wife, his wife, uh, uh, we'd all we'd all get it together at each other's houses. And and Jack was uh, a brilliant, brilliant, talented guy. Um, he became much more useful to everybody else than Phil. With Phil, Phil told you you know just about what he wanted, you know, and and you would come up with it, and then Phil would change it, change your arrangements. I watched him do it a million times. But Jack was resilient, and he also understood orchestration. He was a school musician, mm-hmm. and uh, his wife. Yeah. He had an incredible wife, Gracia Nietzsche. and we were very close with her. Gracia actually was one of the original blossoms that did all the background voices for Phil Spector, oh. and she was the the only white girl in it. The rest were Tanita, Darlene Love, uh, um. Uh, Jeannie King, a whole bunch of them that could, they were unbelievable singers on their own. But he would use to put them together and they became the background singers for the Crystals, for, for the Ronettes, for a whole bunch of people. Oh, well, not so much for the Ronettes because they they could really do their own. Uh, uh, Ronnie Spector was incredible. Yeah. I forget the original name. Uh, but, you know, getting back to, to all the Jack would hire me to help him do charts on, on other things. Because he took too much work, you know, arrangers would get would would get that. I, I said, I hope this never happens to me, and then it did happen to me, and I did it one time. I said, I don't like this very much, <laughs> you know, you know. But I, I felt I felt it was okay to do it. It was some weird project anyway.
0: Yeah, with, but, Ni- uh, uh, with with Nietzsche's film work, I mean, I think about his film scoring. I mean, because that's what my obsession is his film scoring.
1: Well, but he—if well, you look, watch Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, <laughs> Jesus yes. Christ! You know, he he took chances. He did. Uh, and, and now, now uh, let me tell you a quick story. While I remember it, sure. We we did a, a a film score that was absolutely fucking brilliant for a movie. I think it was called Candy. Yes. I think James Mason was in it or something like that. It was unbelievable. We were there three or four days. I think it might have been, I can't remember the the studio now, but it was full orchestra. And Jack, I thought Jack was, uh, the the stuff was brilliant. And then we finished that project and now we're all working on other things. And I got a phone call from Dave Grusin, Mm. who was a monster, you know, a, a piano player besides being a great, Musician and composer, and Dave says, "Don, you have a minute?" I said, "Yeah." He says, I, "I I don't know how to tell you this, but I just got a phone call from the studio, and they want to redo that whole score. Ugh. Do you think I should do it?" He says, "No." I said, "Dave, uh, I said if you don't do it, someone else will. That's that's the nature of our business. They didn't like what Jack Nietzsche had done." Ugh. And it came down to the bottom line, the producer really rules,
0: you know. It was okay. pro- the, sco- the score was probably better than the film. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. I, I, I mean, it, hey, listen, we worked... What the hell is the name of this? Uh, uh, I, I always forget this name. We were working for Jimmy Webb, mm. doing the rhythm tracks for a new film with some of the most incredible music for, uh, um, what the hell is the, the, the character's... Uh, where they flit around and, and, and uh, she's she, the main character. Oh, God, I can't remember the name of it. It ended up being a cartoon and then a, a real film about it. Um, anyway, we worked for all that time, and, and it's there were about 12 or 14 different songs. Every one of them was a hit song for this film, and it got put on a shelf because the producers didn't like it. Mm. Now, that's Jimmy Webb that you shelved. Gosh. <laughs>
0: It's that's such I, a shit. I mean, I would I would love to hear. That. Is that available anywhere? The that original score for Candy. No nope. or, or is it just lost to time?
1: God knows where that would be. That's interesting that you say that. It, w- it was it was it was brilliant. Ah. <sighs> I mean, he did he did some stuff. I mean, that that was pretty pretty incredible. I used to kid him. I used to say you Nazi bastard because he knows I'm Jewish. And I used to accuse him of, of that. He said, no, 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 don't say that, don't say that. <laughs> but he, he did some outrageous, you know, almost Bognarian stuff for that. Mm. on on I a couple of who was excellent, mm. excellent.
0: Your, your film score work, is is it compiled somewhere? Uh, uh, because I, I have Bloody Mama uh, on, on vinyl, I believe uh yes yeah how can i get your your exactly. other film stuff
1: on on the on the end on the vinyl at the very end there's a a little boy singing mama bloody mama yeah and that's that's my son david
0: oh really okay
1: yeah <laughs> who ended up being a musician and got signed uh, he was in uh, a band called damn the machine with chris poland they had they were paid a fortune to do three albums and then the producer was doing something else, and the, the label dropped them, but they had to keep paying them. So those kids in that band for three years were making a fortune without doing anything. Mm. And then, of course, it was over, and my son uh, decided at one point, my oldest son, David, that he had had enough, and he's the best musician out of all of us, and he, he works for U-Haul. Hmm. He, was, he was working for Playboy, and he, he loves music, but he chooses not to do it, not to be active in it. And he and all the guys that at the baked potato remember him from somebody didn't show up, they would, would pick up the base and go fill in for them. You know, he was that good. Oh wow. Until somebody would if somebody was late. But that that's that's life, you know, that's that's the way it is. Yeah. Uh when we when we were doing Bloody Mama, um I, did
0: you know Guy Hamrick at all or about him? I I know very little. <laughs> oh yeah he,
1: he worked closely with AIP I think he was on staff at AIP Guy Hamrick and Jerry I uh, can't remember his last name I would work for them uh, on doing rock and roll dates and stuff like that when we did Fireball 500 they were the writers on that Guy and somebody else and that was an AIP movie mm. with Annette, Winette, Frankie Avalon and Fabian the three of them were in that movie but it was another one of those things I did a, a, a record uh uh, a record uh, a score with that Dory Previn, uh, Andre Previn's ex-wife had written with me for the theme called Up in the Cellar or Three in the Cellar, yes, or something
3: yeah. like that.
1: Yeah. Now they that one. The guy did give a lot of input. the the The, uh, the director he, he did have a lot to say about that and didn't get along very well with the with the with the head people at AIP. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, that's, that's the way it goes. You know, you, you, you can, fortunately, if you, you can remember all that stuff and, and think about it, that's part of the game. It's, it, it's, it's the game that you have to play. And, and it's the, the, uh, I, I think Brandon once said, that you think you have a, you know, you get an Academy award for something. He's what about the schmuck that has to go to work every day for, for eight hours or 10 hours and hates his job for 80% of his life. Yeah, you
0: know. Yeah, you and were you were
1: doing something you love to
0: do. You, you know? were you were blessed not only to do something you you love doing, but to to come up at the time that you did when when the arts, music, movies, when everything was new with possibility. I mean, there were so many innovations, and you sure. were right there and there with it.
1: Yeah, you've got to remember. But for me, I, there's a chapter in the book. I, I, I we started with one track with mono. And then we went to two tracks, mm. and then four, four tracks when it became four track that made Brian Wilson stay, because he became <laughs> the master of, of ping ponging back and forth. Okay. We've got enough on this track. Let's move it over to this track and add this, and then go back down and forth. And that made his, his whole life. And, and he, he knew how to do that better than anyone. That was he, he knew the electronic capability of just having four track. And then when they went to eight, I remember who was it, Tommy Tedesco? Because Tommy said, "What the hell are they going to do with all those tracks?" <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> and then, of course, now it's infinity with Pro Tools. You know, you can—you know—tracks aren't a, 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 a an inevitability, so to speak. You can go on from now to, to eternity.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear—I I, I would love recordings of of your scores for Up in the Cellar and Stacy and. Uh, you know, are they available anywhere? I mean, where can you get them other um, than just viewing Stace, the film? St-
1: Stacy is not. I think up in the cellar was was on, on the disc also. Okay. But AIP has it. Uh, Stacy, uh, that that was done by uh, director Andy Sedaris. Right. Do you know who Andy is? Uh, oh yes. Who he was? Yeah. Yeah. Andy's an, was one of my favorite people of all time. Mm. I mean, he, he he could he he could swear to anyone. I mean, the language, and you <laughs> accepted it because it was Andy. <laughs>
0: he was a, he was a big, was, big who, personality.
1: Was British. Yeah, yeah, he was. And I adored him, man. I got him, uh, 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 there, there used to be a Western store, and he wore cowboy boots. Uh, so there was a, stu- uh, a store called Nudie's on Lancashire Boulevard, not far from where the baked potato is, actually, mm-hmm. for years. And and everybody, you know, they had two tailors in there that became very famous for all the all the guys. All, if you wanted something really good, you went there, and they would make suits for you. And all, all the uh, big rock uh, uh, country stars would go there. But he also sold a lot of gear that everybody wanted to have and wear. And he had the greatest stock of of cowboy boots. And there was a the, the Tom Mix model. The Tom Mix model was like black and white leather. And and it uh, um, had like tulips on on uh, each side, Be- actually beautiful. So I got Andy a set of that. Only I had Nudie, the head of guy, right on left and right on on the back on the heel <laughs> <hill> part.
2: <laughs>
1: Put an L in leather and 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 and, and, and an R. So Andy got it. And he looked at the book, and all of a sudden he started to scream and howl. And of course, that was his pride and joy. You know, he would show everybody. Only Don would do that <laughs> <laughs> because he was he was amazing. When he passed away, his wife Arlene, who was absolutely adorable, became a hell of a producer herself for television. She did quite a lot of stuff. But uh, we, Andy was not Jewish. He was Greek uh, something. But we did it at, at, at a. A, a Jewish cemetery because they, they could fit and She knew the rabbi there who was very funny and everybody showed up at this temple in, in Culver city. I think I, I know my mother is buried there too, yeah. but Al Jolson, a lot of famous people. And here we are in this hall. And that's, the, that's the tape I want because the, the jokes and the stories people were telling about Andy and you name every, he was so famous for sports. You know, that's where he started. He was the one that, that did started stop-action, instant replay, wow. a whole bunch of stuff that ended up being, you know, the way to do it. And he was the guy that would, if there was a chick with, with big boobs, Andy would zoom in on it. You know, <laughs> he'd get in trouble all the time because, you know, and they, you couldn't do that. Or if a guy got, got hurt, Andy would zoom in on, on watching the accident, and he, he wanted to show the reality of everything. -hmm. And uh, and he was an innovator. uh, I forget the name of the guy that was the head of the sports department there. uh, Oh, and he calls me, and he said I had worked on a couple of little projects. He says they want to they want to change everything at ABC. I said, what do you mean? He says they need themes for this. So there was about fifteen different themes. He says we're going to go in. I'm going to produce it. I'll put up the money for the bands, and then with Arun Arledge, that was the name of the guy. Rune was the head of ABC Sports, and then a, a early morning programming, too. So we go in, and I'm cutting all these themes, all these, uh, one after another, and and never thinking, okay, big deal. If they use one of these, I'll be very happy. They ended up using 11 of them. Wow. So there was a, there was a time on ABC where I was really cleaning up, especially on Saturdays <laughs> and Sundays, when they had the, all the sporting events that they were showing. Wide world of sports and, and stuff like that. They would always use my music for themes, and they had one, a theme for NBA basketball, one for college, one for one for bowling, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. whatever there was they were doing. They had a theme, and and Rune Arledge bought them all, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, so I, I lucked out very much because of Andy, but he and I stayed friends forever till he passed away, and to see all these famous. The celebrities at his funeral you know, from uh, um, from the sports world was pretty amazing, and I'm just sitting there. Nobody knew who the hell I was, you know, mm-hmm. except for Arlene, his wife. But everybody else that was there, and Rune Arledge, of course, he, he and I got along well. And they all would. After the seventies, once I opened the club, everybody would come there. Yeah, yeah. There, there was there was a guy who heard me play. Uh, he was the head of children's programming. And uh, he contacted me and he came out to the club and he's listening. He says, Hey, I just noticed you're going to be down in Ventura. We were doing a concert at at Laguna festival. And he said, I'm going to bring a date and come down there. So he did. And we started, we we became friends. The next thing I know, I get a call to fly to New York. And I ended up having a show called all Star Saturday on ABC. And the show started at eight o'clock in the morning and finished at noon. I had all, all the bumpers, all the ins and outs for all the cartoon shows that they were showing on ABC on Saturday. Wow! And you, you all saw Saturday on ABC, and I had a full chorus on it. I had a full orchestra on some of them, a little band. I mean, it was incredible. They paid me a fortune for it.
0: Can I uh, before I let you go? Can I ask you about one other uh, friend of sure, yours? Sure, you can do whatever
1: you want. I have no, ru- I'm not in a rush.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I I I am was a, a huge fan of uh, Glenn Campbell as well. Uh, yes. And uh, you, I mean, I, I know your relationship with him goes back, but you also yes. performed on his last single, the, the "I'm Not Going to Miss You." Didn't you?
1: Yes, that's right. That that was. My son sings it with my band. Uh, we will we, we'll do it. And he, my son, uh, Justin, who runs the club, actually, it's his club now, The Baked Potato. Um, he does a, a version of that that you'll see people in the audience literally crying, especially mm-hmm. Glenn Campbell fan, fans. Um, he sat five feet from where I was when we did it. And Hal Blaine did it and Joe Osborne, the other wrecking guys. And he and I are looking right at each other and he's, there he is playing the guitar. And he has no idea who I am. Mm. Mm. And I'm sitting there and I literally was crying while I was playing it, you know. And and, and uh, I, I still get choked up thinking about it. And every time I have to play it, it gets me. Yeah. Because he, he was such, you know, he was a guy and I thought it was very courageous of what she did, what his wife did and, and the kids of letting them film that for the last year, you know, it's, you know, you, you would think I keep telling my wife this and and now we were dealing with COVID, but in in my lifetime, I was hoping to see a cure for one of those for Parkinson's or something like that. I'm 83 now. And it doesn't look very good. We're getting worse, you know? Mm. So, uh,
0: well just listening to just listening to that track. I mean, the, it it seemed, it seemed like a sacred kind of ground. It must have been when you guys yep. recorded that.
1: Oh yeah, it was. So we we were actually at the NAMM show, and we and Denny Tedesco said they're looking for you. I said who? They're doing this thing, and he got a hold of Hal and I, and Joe Osborne was out uh, doing something for Lakeland uh, Bases and Guitars, so they sent a, a, a limo for them. I, I i I Hal was living in Palm Springs, and Joe was visiting from uh from Nashville I guess or from Shreveport or wherever he lived, so they didn't have it. I just hopped in my car and we all met at United Western which is now east west studios mm-hmm. and uh and that's where we rec- we recorded you know that's the same place where we did the uh Elvis Presley and everybody else you know, but that was it was a very tough day for me, you know. Uh, here we, we left the AM show, uh, the electronic show and came shooting over there. They went back. I said, I had had enough at that point of, of, schmoozing with everybody. So I just went home after that. But, uh, um, I, as I'm driving home, I said, oh, I, you, it, it starts to hit you. My God, he didn't know, even know who I was. And I tried to talk to him and, uh, what was it? Uh, before we did that thing, I didn't know that he was sick and Capitol, there was a a big thing honoring him at at Capitol Records studios, at the Capitol studios in Hollywood. And I get a call from Nancy Sinatra. She said, are you going to go? I said, I think so. She says, well, plan on it and come pick me up. So I went and I picked up Nancy and we went to the the party for Glenn. And he he didn't really know who she was. He didn't know who I was but he wasn't sure about Nancy and she was so taken by that and that she, she grabbed my hand. She said, he doesn't know why I'm in. Oh, and then, and then it hit him who she was. And he said, Oh, I'm glad you wore the boots. Just like that. Oh, wow. And, and she, that, then she he, she realized he knew who she was, you know, but you know, that's kind of, uh, that's the way life, we <laughs> life the, the, the tough stuff you go through. And, and, uh, to see him get worse and worse after that you know yeah. we all knew that he was sick uh, his, his daughters and say so his son is a hell of a drummer you know one of the kids and so his daughter can sing uh, oh
0: she, yeah uh, she sure enough. can yeah you know i saw yeah, him yeah a- i saw him in concert uh a few years before he passed i and i think it was during his last tour so maybe it was closer to his passing but i just seized the opportunity to see him in concert and just his his beautiful soaring voice and man he could make an electric guitar sing like like oh, no one else. And he
1: was just amazing guitar. He was an amazing guitar. Okay, I'm going to give you one more story, a Glenn Campbell's story. All <laughs> Please, right? yes. Leon, Leon Russell and I and Hal Blaine and Joe Osborne and whoever was available, we'd help songwriters on a Saturday or a Sunday, and give them two two for a quarter, two songs for twenty five bucks. And you had to come in, be ready because you got an hour or an hour and a half. And next, you know, the next so we, we'd knock out a bunch of stuff just to help out the guys. The guy who was the guitar player was Glenn. And here we, here we were all student studied musicians. And Glenn can read a note. And he would get the songs before all of us and then telling us what the chords were, you know. He would figure it out before, because most of the songwriters didn't know how to write music. They knew how to write songs, you know, but they didn't know how to how to put it down on pen or or what it was. And Glenn would figure it out. But on top of that, Glenn was the guy that sang most of those demos. So somebody, someplace, has got to have hundreds, uh, at least a couple of hundred songs that Glenn's versions as a demo was better than the original.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Ugh. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah. Man. Glenn would have, if Glenn couldn't sing he would have still been one of the studio musicians you know mm-hmm. and he couldn't read a note if it, if it was a written <laughs> part you know forget about it you know
0: <laughs> and you worked with uh with Mama Cass as well just just prior to her oh, death you did.
1: didn't you? oh boy i got one of my favorite albums it was an album that she did i think uh her solo album i'm oh. um, me playing piano on it and I think one of the great jazz composers and write, uh, arranged it, Benny Golson. He came out from New York to do that. I think we—I can't remember where we did it, but I did that whole album. She and I were neighbors. She lived right up the street from me on Nichols Canyon and Woodrow Wilson.
0: Mm.
1: For years, and you know, Ringo, everybody lived up there. It was great.
0: <laughs> what a massive town area
1: her... she was. Oh yes, she was, and she's a sweet, sweet person too.
0: But so, so many like truly great vocalists. I mean, you mentioned Linda Ronstadt earlier and and Ronstadt was one of the all-time great vocalists of that era.
1: Linda is is absolutely amazing because she has the capacity of not breathing. Mm. You never see her go to take a breath to do something. Never. You can see everything on her. She never, she doesn't have to do that. She has the greatest control of her voice forever. Incidentally, have you seen the the uh, uh, the documentary uh, on on Ron that says Ronstadt?
0: I did. It was it, very it, it, very it, it, moving. Yeah.
1: Oh, I love that one. I mean, I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. I mean, you watch her and and you see her singing that well, and then being able to move from genre to genre to, mm-hmm. to big band jazz. One of my favorite all-time Spanish albums is, is done by her, that that all Spanish album that she did.
0: You know, oh, it's which is it's gorgeous.
1: Orchestral mariachi, you know. Actually, Christine Aguilera did a one like that too. That's excellent. Very mm. very, very very fine.
0: Do you f- do you feel? And but, this this is my last question for you. Do you feel because you came up in such a, f- a formative time for for music. Do you, do you still feel the romance of of music of creating music today like you did when you started
1: yeah I, I, that's why i still play in, in, in clubs i still do it i go iceland his name is gare Olafson. he's like the big fish in a little pond they've known him in there since he's five years old and he does big band swing stuff but now he's doing a lot of the rock tunes with with a smaller band and he can sing anything. And I go, we go there once a year around Christmas time every year. And I bring my my whole rhythm section, and then we pick up horn players there, and we have a ball, you know. And and uh, he's an exciting guy. And we've done two or three albums with him with some of the finest musicians he could ever play with, you know. So it, it's the love for music never goes away. It, it, you're getting paid for something you love to do. It's an advantage that we have over most of the people that have careers that hate what they're doing, you know, yeah. but they have to put up with it, you know. It's, it's, it's you love it and you hate it at the same time. I, I've, I've written a play, me and my guitar player, John DePatty and a girl, Shari Puerto. I had an idea to write a play about recovery. And we have some amazing, amazing songs. And we're just getting ready to, to, to start show it and then for somebody to do it for Broadway or for wherever. And the COVID thing is, and nobody's even in their offices or near or listening to anything, you know? Yeah. So here we are. It's cost me a fortune last year. And then on on March 30th of this year, everything stopped completely. So everybody's income went to shit, you know, Mm. overnight. So it's, uh, it's, it's not an easy time. But I I spent three years putting this whole thing together, and it cost a fortune. And we got some great singers, great bands on it. And uh, now I'm waiting for this to get over so I can go and try and get somebody interested in it and and produce it for a a Broadway play or a play any place, you know. Uh, Let me tell you one, one thing. There's a scene in Bloody Mama. Okay. Where, where Shelley Winters breaks a bottle over Bobby De Niro's head and he goes down. Now, when they did that, I was outside the set. Me and, and, and Don Stroud were standing together, watching the, the De Niro and, and Shelly Winters. She hits him with the bottle, one of those breakaway bottles that they use,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it di- and it didn't break away. It hit him solid. You hear it go, Clunk. <laughs> and he literally he he went down on one knee. And every everybody was, and Roger said, "Let it roll." And he played out to the thing, and then some blood is coming off the side of him, and, that, and then he hollered, "Cut!" But that was the scene they used. Wow, you never saw the. I mean, it's it, pretty heavy duty.
0: <laughs> it was, and the and the, and the, and the personality, yeah. you know, and the fact that Corman, I mean, he he worked cheap and fast, but he he, he was very smart. He cast. Very serious, sure. determined kind of method performers for his movies. They gave him some oh, gravitas. Yes. Uh,
1: uh, th- those guys worked hard on that film. Everybody that was there put their put their time in. You know, <laughs> every, every 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 the uh, the guy that did sound for the film that that was really great. I remember he was on like He and his wife were there. You know? I got to meet them and hang out with them.
0: Well, Incidentally,
1: it, I don't know if you. It, some of the greatest fishing in the world is right there at Bo Shoals. My, fa- my father,
0: fishing. my father was from Arkansas, so I've I've I spent time there as a youngster when he would drive back up yeah. there. But, uh, yeah, and you know, Bloody Mama came about obviously because Bonnie and Clyde was a big hit, and Corman wanted to capitalize yes, on it, true. but it stands yeah. on its own.
1: Oh, it does! It does. Yeah, it does. Uh, absolutely. There, there, there's a. Um, there's a, a a film out. You want to hear some a good score? Well, uh, it's called The Racing Scene, and that was done by Andy Sedaris too. It's about James Garner. Yes. And 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 his thing with with the formula cars. You, uh, his, you did that.
0: Fortune, millions of dollars. You did that prior to Bloody Mama, right?
1: Yes, I I think so. I'm not sure.
0: Sixty nine, I think. Around uh,
1: yeah. I, um, but there's an interesting thing in that film. The, the theme is sung by Joe South. That's Joe South that did the theme for that movie. Hmm. And that all, all was a, a, by accident. Well, not really. <laughs> um, we're, I'm driving back from the, after we recorded and I have uh, the guy that wrote the lyric with me, Pete Wilcox, sang dump the, the uh, thing for the movie. And, and that, will, <laughs> that would have been the voice you heard in the movie, Pete, hmm. Pete singing it. Peter became very famous as one of the Elvis impersonators. He was T.B.'s Elvis so whenever they needed an actor. And then he ran it in Vegas for years, uh, P. Wilcox's Elvis Presley. But anyway, James Garner's in the car uh, driving me back, going in, in a in one of those Shelby Ford Mustangs on, on Sunset Boulevard, driving 9,000 miles an hour <laughs> to, get, to get from from... <laughs> Near Western, over to to the nine thousand building in in, in uh, the start of Beverly Hills, and I keep saying, "Are you out of your mind?" He says, "No, no, this car can handle it." I said, "Yeah, but I can't, I can't <laughs> handle it, right?" <laughs> so finally, we get back there, and as we get into the underground parade, he says, "You know, Joe South is my favorite singer," and I looked over to him and I said, "So." He says, I want you, can you get the song to him? I want him to sing the song. I said, first of all, I can't get it to him. And second of all, Joe South doesn't sing anything he doesn't write. Or if he does, it's got to be a real good friend of his. He says, well, how much will it cost? I said, wait a second, That's The money has nothing to do with it, James. So I happen to be working. <laughs> Two days later, I happen to be at Capitol Record. I forget what, the guy, some producer was producing somebody that I was working for. Wayne Shuler was the name of the producer. He was a guy that moved out to Capitol from Nashville. So he was at Capitol Studios. And I said, he said, what have you been doing? I I was there having a meeting with him because I was going to write some arrangements for him. And I would tell him about the thing and I said, you know, you're back from back there, from from Tennessee. Do you know anybody that c- can get to Joe South? Just joking around. He says, no. He says, but but there's a guy coming to meet with me tomorrow. His name is Bill Lowry. I said, big deal. Who's Bill Lowry? He says, he's the guy that, that's the manager, management for Joe South, Billy Joe Royal, a huh. whole bunch of people. And he's going to be here tomorrow. So I said, look, this is the situation. And I said, I called James Garner. He says, offer him offer him two hundred dollars. I said, don't be stupid. I said, oh, he says, all right, offer him five hundred dollars. So I go out of the office. I come back. He says, Wait, he said, and that money has nothing to do with it. He says, he won't do it. I said, please, just ask Bill Lowry, and I give him a demo of what we had done. And Bill Lowry takes it back to Joe South. And about two weeks go by, with Andy's already cut together with the with the P. Uh, uh, Wilcox version of uh, Why Does a Man Do What He Has to Do is the name of the song. It, uh, it, no. Yeah, that's asked Why Does a Man Do What He Has to Do? And in the middle of the night, about three in the morning, I, my phone rings and my wife grabs the phone. She says, some guy with a southern accent and I pick up the phone. He says, you Don Randy? I said, yeah. He says, well, this is Joe South. We did the song. He says, "You want to hear it?" I said, "Yeah." And he plays it to me on the phone. I said, "Well, thank you very much." He said, "We got a deal, don't we?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "I love it. I lo- I love it. I love James Garner." And that was it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. So like... now
1: I have fi- I have I have a fi- I get the money from James Garner. I said, five hundred dollars. I wanted to give it to Wayne Schuler, the, the producer, because he came out here. He didn't have a goddamn dime. Mm. And capital was not, you know, they're not, they weren't known for being, you know, generous, so to speak. So uh, I had a fight with him to take the money, mm. but he took it. He finally took it, and and uh, which was really, really neat. But he got got to be Joe South. So the story goes on. Joe South goes on tour. He's at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles one summer. I got a call, do you want to go? And I, I, I was in the studio with Brian with doing pet sounds, I think, or something like that. We were on some big project and I couldn't go. The the variety or, or reporter that does the, the entertainment paper every week out here or every day, does a review of his show and and, and does the whole thing that he says, he said, we're gonna close the show tonight. with well, one of your Hollywood guys wrote this thing. He says, his name is Don Randy, you know? And i I'm, I'm not there. Some friends of mine that went to see the show told me the whole story. And then they printed it. It is a great song. And he closed, closed his show for that whole year using why does a man do what he has to do? Wow. All over the United States. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you never Which know. Is, you, know
1: it's, you, you never know. It's just exactly right.
0: Exactly Seren- serendipity right. comes in. You know, luck has a lot to do with, you know, our sure, paths in life. Sure, it does.
1: Yeah, well, Exactly.
0: Well, Don, my friend, uh, this is uh, talking to you has been a blessing. Let's do it again sometime.
1: Be sure and connect uh, when, when you get out here, or if you're going to come out, and, and uh, if you need anything, or, or I'm going to try and send you a copy of the the play that we did, and. Uh, get your thoughts on
0: it. Oh, know, that would be that it. would be beautiful. I would be honored. And next time I do come out, I am going to look you up. I'm going to say, "Let's get together. Let's have a bite and I'll, I'll go to your Yes, yes I'll go sure. to the baked potato and uh, we'll make a we'll make a thing of it."
1: <laughs> okay. Please please do that. Please do that.
2: Just to be alive is not all right with me. There's something more I know there's
3: got to be All the places I've been and the roads I've traveled on Now the time has come Now the time has come Why does a man do what he has to do? Why does a man do what he has to do? Sky painted blue where all your dreams come true by my face, always moving on to find another place, there's nothing I could change and nothing that I'd rather do, wherever that road, where it leads me to, oh, tell me why does the man do what he has to do? Your life is not all right with me There's something more I know there's got to be All the places I've been and the roads I've traveled on Now the time has come Now the time has come Oh, Why does a man do what he has to do? Why does a man do what he has to do? Where all your dreams go through